0: From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter,
1: and in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. and this is the VinePair podcast. You're back. I'm back on the main home, home to very cold, fairly wet Seattle. So you know it's, it's good to be home. Putting on sweatshirts again, coats, gloves, all the good stuff. Wow, no more puka shells and uh, flip flops for a little while. Shells. <laughs> Was the shell thing a big deal when you were like, uh, I feel like it was like 12, 13 uh, in my neck of the woods? Uh, all of a sudden, everyone was wearing them?
0: Not in the south. It was a West Coast thing.
1: Okay. Yeah, it was definitely like suddenly big. And I had fortuitously i guess for my sake just been to hawaii as a kid my only other trip in my life uh and uh, i had brought back a necklace kind of right as not like i was ahead of the trend i just was like i'm gonna get one and then i could be like i got mine in hawaii the rest of you assholes got yours at hollister in the mall
0: <laughs> i love that you probably were like this is original puka shell
1: can't you tell the sense of place that these shells provide exactly was, you know i was on point for for my throughout my life
0: i love it so what have you been drinking zach
1: well, you know, I was going to just talk about a couple things that I had in Hawaii since we okay. haven't really kind of fully recapped. And, and I think one of the things that was really interesting to me about this trip, and admittedly, trip with kids, not a trip where Caitlin and I were going to be able to like seek out mm-hmm. some of the top cocktail bars, some of the, you know, all that stuff. But what I was surprised by, and it's not a criticism or anything, was that the couple of cocktail bars that we went to. I was I kind of expected them to lean more heavily into the Hawaiian piece of their like existence, and I'm not saying there wasn't anything Hawaiian on the menus, but a lot of the cocktails were like the kind of cocktails I would see on a cocktail list in Seattle or New York or anywhere else, and it made me think a little bit about whether like it's weird that that is it it struck me as odd because whereas if you went into any other restaurant Mm -hmm. or bar, not a kind of higher end cocktail bar in in Hawaii, you're going to see, I mean, obviously you would, if you ordered a martini, you could get a martini, but the cocktail list is here's your Mai Tais, your painkillers, yeah. your pina coladas, your all those things, right? Cause they, the assumption is for a good chunk of the people who are coming into those places to drink, they want tropical shit. They want yeah. Hawaiian shit. And yet in the couple of nice cocktail bars we went to, it was like, here's a Sazerac. Here's an old fashioned. And again, they were good. No criticism, and in some ways, I was. We were both kind of ready for that kind of drinking, but it was odd to me that they didn't have more. Like I said, more kind of Hawaiian influence, because maybe under you know maybe just a mis, misconception on my part. Maybe I kind of assumed that there would be more people like us who were looking for some kind of hybridization of the two. Like I would have loved it if more of these places had had like, yeah, we're doing a pina colada, but we're doing a pina colada in the really traditional way. Yeah, We're not necessarily doing it in a blender, which I also love to be clear. That's a great drink. It's just, you know, it's one kind of pina colada. And if you're doing the like kind of classic formulation where it's a shaken drink, you know, you're it's not necessarily super sweet. It's kind of a different, you know, it's just a different kind of cocktail. And again, didn't see a lot of that and i just struck me as odd it wasn't again no criticism of the bars they right. made good cocktails but just eh, it was weird to me i think that you know
0: that's really interesting that you bring that up because we've been talking a lot about how in the office in the editorial meetings it seems like the cocktail bars that wind up sort of like on the top of lists in the long run in a, around the world are a lot of these like and so we're talking you know top 50 or best bars or whatever are always these cocktail bars that ultimately do incorporate the flavors of where they are from, even in a classic cocktail, right? So it's like, this is an old fashioned, but, you know, with a riff that has, you know, influences from, uh, you know, Vietnam or things like that, there's a, there's a lot of that that you're trying to see, or this is a cocktail that, you know, tastes like a Greek salad, like the Clumsies in Athens, which is one of the best bars in in the world, And so I it's so curious that you didn't see that in Hawaii. Maybe that's on its way, I have to assume, because so many cocktail bars now in that part of the world are getting lots of recognition. You know, Singapore is supposed to have some of the best cocktail bars in the world now. Yeah. Uh, Same with, obviously, Japan and uh, Australia, et cetera, that maybe that will just sort of filter over to Hawaii, and we'll start seeing that. But yeah, I mean, I feel like that's what normally happens, though, right, is like cocktail culture comes to a place, and the place gets really good at making the classics. And then that experimentation happens where you have enough bartenders in the market that are all really good at making the classic drinks that then they start to
1: riff. Yeah, for sure. And I think the other piece of it is is that I think that there's probably a little bit of I don't want to say fear, but maybe a little hesitation on some of these cocktail bars of like not wanting to seem gimmicky, not wanting to right. seem like touristy bars. You know, they want to feel really serious and thoughtful cocktail bars and perhaps the easiest way to do that is to serve you know strong brown spirits stirred you know etc right kind of all that stuff that i think can certainly work and i mean granted we were mm-hmm. in hawaii at a time when it was like kind of cold and rainy at times so it wasn't like that unwelcome but i can imagine it being a little incongruous to be like here i am at this you know cocktail bar where it's sort of sunny and warm and all of that. And what they're offering me is the same kind of cocktails that I might be drinking, you know, in winter in Seattle. And it yep. just, it yeah. It, so I think you're right. It might be a level of just yeah, the, the scene needing to evolve a little bit and, and maybe just a little more confidence in the ability to walk that line between highlighting local ingredients and local flavors without tipping over into kind of touristy kitsch.
0: Yep. How about you? What you been drinking? So, um, recently, well, around the Super Bowl, I thought it was fun to, uh, have a, a little bottle of, a little, or a dram of Sweetens Cove, which is the bourbon that, uh, yeah. you know, Peyton Manning owns, because I just thought it'd be fun. Uh, so that, that was one of the things I had. And then, um, went to Manhattan this past week and had some of their delicious cocktails as well as amazing wine. Uh, they have such a deep wine list. Um, so had some really, Great Burgundy, and uh, also had my favorite cocktail they make there. Consider the cookie. They always money was not on the cocktail list anymore, which I was no. worried
1: about. But okay. No longer money.
0: I know because you know the banana cocktail really delicious. Um, and I will be doing a lot more drinking this week because I'm heading tonight to Wine Country. Uh, doing. Doing a ton of meetings. My sort of my last trip before I go out on paternity leave uh, in California to meet with a bunch of our partners. So I'm going to Napa, Sonoma, San Francisco. So I will have a lot more to uh, to report back with in our next recording.
1: Fantastic! Can't wait yeah. to hear all hear all about it.
0: Yeah. So uh, this is going to be a Spirits Monday podcast, which we haven't had in a while. So we've talked a lot about you know what's going on in wine.
1: And this is yeah. We're talking so, about a category that's doing well. Yeah, we're, we're <laughs> going
0: to rub some salt in the wound again of wine and say that. So the the discuss data came out uh, this past week, and spirits is now officially past beer in terms of uh, in in sales. Uh, continues just be this massive behemoth. Whiskey's past vodka, uh, just really on fire. And one of the things that discuss is uh, is using as its claim to why spirits is doing so well is actually on premise. So it uh-huh. continues to reinforce what we've been talking about which is now we have data folks to back up what we've been saying which is that people are drinking more cocktails when they go out. Uh they are choosing cocktails over anything else. This is very clear in the discuss uh data sets that they've that they've provided um that shows that cocktails are really driving this Embrace of Spirits, and that Embrace of Spirits has really skyrocketed post-pandemic as people have gone back out to restaurants and bars, and they are choosing at restaurants to drink spirits. I mean, I guess part of me when I think about this is like, are we that surprised, Zach?
1: No, I don't think we are. So two quick notes here. The first one, and I cannot believe that this thing had not occurred to me until literally we started this podcast, Uh but it feels like an incredibly relevant point. Is that a thing that spirits excels at? And again, we're not, I don't want to shit on wine anymore. We've done a lot of it, yeah. unfortunately. But I have to. I have to point out the contrast here: is you can be someone who's like, I want to try a really fancy spirit, and you can go to a bar and you can get a pour of it. Right? You were talking about being down in Louisville recently, and you could get a half ounce pour of you know really really old uh, whiskey, old bourbon yep. or whatever. Or you can go to a bar almost anywhere in the country and find a really high end pour, you know, a half ounce, ounce, ounce and a half, whatever. And you can both have that experience and like kind of show off with it or just learn, right? You can say, I don't know that I really want to drink a spirit that pours for a hundred dollars an ounce on a regular basis, but maybe one time I want to taste that. And with wine, you just can't do that, right? You can buy a really expensive bottle, but you can't get a taste Neat. they're not going to be like oh yeah you're interested in what drc is like cool we have an open bottle let me pour you an ounce like that's just i mean yes there are a few places that have like Coravin systems and stuff like that where they'll say they'll pour you a tiny pour of high-end wine but that's those systems are expensive they're hard to access and honestly i'm always a little dubious like <laughs> don't come at me Coravin people but like i've tried a lot of wine from corvin that has been pushed on me by sales reps and stuff like that and it just i don't Wine is not spirits. Like it has a shorter shelf life, and I don't care what you're injecting into the bottle to try and keep it I agree. preserved. Like, I don't totally buy it. So, the point is, like, you talk about this, and obviously the growth in spirits that we're talking about from, and to just to clarify for people who might be listening and not be familiar with the acronym, this is this the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. That's what DISCA stands for. Um, and they do a bunch of this survey data and market analysis. Um, they're a really good source for a lot of this information. And what they're they're not getting at people going in and ordering one ounce pours of you know the old crow chessman or whatever that you had. <laughs> in I had. Louisville. I don't think that adds up to very much of this uh, increase, but they are capturing the whole lot of sales. And I think what we're seeing is that people see spirits as both something that is more approachable, something that they can enjoy at home, but also something that can be a part of that special occasion, that can be whether it's in a cocktail, whether it's a just a, a pour need or or on ice or whatever, that people can enjoy and that in some cases is worth going out for, right? Because the experience, whether it's access to things that you just can't find or the fact that you can have, you know, you just want to pour, right? No. You don't have to commit to the whole bottle, whether that's at home or in a restaurant or bar. These are things that just give spirits a natural leg up on wine and even on beer, which we'll talk, I think, about the beer versus spirits competition, such as it is in a moment. But like when we're talking about it when compared to wine, I think it's just that kind of unique experience in a bar or restaurant that you can have with spirits that wine is having a hard time matching.
0: The one thing that I think is really interesting here, uh, and I think it's the most applicable to whiskey. I don't think it's, as applicable to tequila, but I think it's also, this is also why whiskey is surpassing vodka is, and this was mentioned to me when I was down in Louisville and I really do feel it's very accurate, is that whiskey can both be America's working class beverage and also a high-end beverage. Yeah. And, it's the same thing. It's understand, right? So it's working class when you come home and you take that whiskey and you drink it straight, or you drink it with mixed with some ginger ale or Coca Cola or whatever. And it becomes really fancy when you go out and you have a bartender make you a Manhattan or amazing old fashioned with clear ice and a beautiful garnish. And that's just what it is. And I think the thing again, that, that makes it so competitive then in both sectors, right? Fine wine, luxury, and beer working class is that whiskey as a liquid always says drink it however you want it. Yeah. And that's another thing that, you know, we've talked about especially a lot with wine that wine does very poorly where wine basically says, no, no, no there's rules. Drink it in stemware, you know, you have Riedel coming out with a different stemware for each varietal, which <laughs> it's just like okay, cool. So I don't have the Pinot Noir glasses, so I guess I can't drink nice Pinot Noir. You know, make it with these only these food pairings, all that stuff. I think is really is a real really big turnoff for most consumers. Uh-huh. Most consumers are like, well, but spirits are telling me drink it however I want to.
1: And- yeah, whatever temperature I want, all those things.
0: Exactly. And so I think that's just uh, – I, I think that's why you're seeing it now pass beer because it, it's finally sort of taken this – the mantle that it can be both. And so it was growing, 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 just passing beer, I think, as that sort of everyday beverage at home that people were enjoying. And then the restaurants open back up. And it's like, aha, motherfucker, I can do what you can't do. I can pull yeah. this trick where I'm about to go into bars and – you're still going to look a little less sophisticated drinking that light beer at the bar at the fancy restaurant. They might have it for you, but you're going to look a little less sophisticated by ordering that light beer. But I'm going to take my same liquid and I'm going to go into a cocktail and I'm going to look real classy because I can shower and clean up real nice. And I, think, <laughs> I mean, honestly, and I think that that's where where spirits has this massive advantage right now in the culture that is making it very competitive with both liquids.
1: Yeah. And it's that you can be, yeah, you as you said, you can be simple and sophisticated with the same base spirit, just depending on kind of how it's presented to you, how it's, uh, what it might be mixed with or not mixed with in various cases. I also think there's something else that it's interesting to me that I was thinking about this in the specific context of on-premise, is that like, it's in the same way that we might look at wine inventory or beer inventory as being like a big investment. I think it's feels like less of an investment for a restaurant or bar to, to kind of put some money into uh, spirits program for two reasons. One is because, again, they're much less perishable than either of those other two products. I mean, wine isn't super perishable if it's still in a bottle and obviously stored somewhere, uh, with climate control or some level of climate control, but that's not easy for every restaurant to do necessarily. Mm-hmm. And once you pull the cork or open the screw cap or whatever, the time, you know, the clock is really ticking. And with beer, you know, again, you need to keep it cold. You need to keep it, if it's a keg, you know, you have to think about how quickly are you pouring through stuff. And, you know, draft systems aren't exactly cheap. Uh, keeping them clean is always a little bit of a struggle, even in nicer places. And all of those things are just, spirits are just like, yeah, just open the bottle and pour me. Like, that's all you got to fucking do. Exactly. And and from an operator standpoint, I think that's also appealing, not just because you can, not necessarily invest as much money, but because the sort of the space needs, the temperature control needs are much less. And then the last piece of it is, and we talked about this a while back when we were talking in one of the previous episodes about how spirits do allow, and cocktails in particular allow for a little more kind of obfuscation of your margins, basically. Mm -hmm. Like you can build a cocktail that looks great, tastes great, is $18, and the Person drinking it isn't necessarily going to know that only two dollars worth of ingredients went into it. Right. Potentially. If you're, you know, savvy and all that. And getting that might be a little bit of an extreme example, but I do think that you are seeing people potentially be able to to pivot away from, as we've talked about, from wine and from beer, which are harder to mark up because The sort of unit of sale, especially if it's a can or bottle of beer or a bottle of wine, Mm -hmm. it's something that's recognizable to people that they can go buy in a store or look up online. It's hard to price out a cocktail online, right? You know, it just isn't. People have some frame of reference that like, okay, a Manhattan is this much at other bars. So as long as I'm paying in that range, I feel like I'm not getting cheated in a way that with beer and wine, just easier for people to compare, not just to other on premise costs, but you know, retail costs, online costs, et cetera. I wanted to ask our listeners, because I was thinking about this too, if they, you know, cause because you guys have such great feedback for us a lot of the time. And I was I was wondering, you know, we've talked a lot about this the growth of of spirits and whether it's being, you know, what it's being driven by, you know, maybe not specifically by tequila or by even by whiskey or vodka, but by kind of all of this coming together. And I was wondering if there's like some element of where did the switch flip? When was the inflection point where drinking spirits went from something that kind of got viewed as like a little bit suspicious? Like if you're the person who's like sat down at a bar and like I want a whiskey neat, you were like, oh, that person is like, do they have a drinking problem? Are they like, are they like? you know are they possibly like a a rough customer to like the most sophisticated thing you could do and i don't have an answer for this i have a couple of thoughts but i think it's it's part part of the story here isn't just that we've been talking about you know kind of the way that spirits present themselves but also kind of the way the cultural impression of drinking hard liquor has changed because this country has always had a really complicated history with hard liquor right like we think about prohibition and all the movement against mm-hmm. drinking in general and most of that was aimed at spirits right yes beer yes wine, but those things were not viewed by the temperance movement as nearly as dangerous largely i think because of alcohol content and you know we've now entered this era where as we've talked about a bunch Drinking spirits, whether it's cocktails, whether it's spirits need, is seen as a sophisticated, classy thing, and it was not always that case. Like it was not always seen as a sign of class and, and sort of um, refinement to be drinking in this way. And I would love to hear, obviously, if you have thoughts on them, but I would love to hear from our listeners too. You can email us podcast at dot com or get a hold of us on social media. If you've got a, a suggestion for what might have helped sort of tip the balance in spirits' favor, would love to hear. I mean, I
0: think this goes back to a few things but i mean one i think again you just can't deny what role spirits is able to play in the like in the everyday consumers lives in terms of like its just ability to be multiple things to people but i also think that what joanna said on a previous podcast is very accurate i think a lot of the chef foodie movement has helped spirits a ton because we started to care in the last 20 years about who made our dishes, right? We started having the chef's name on the menu. We started having the farms on the, you know, where the products were coming from on the menu. We We started caring about the craft of the cuisine. We had the rise of Food Network, et cetera. And spirits are the same in that the drink the cocktail at the restaurant is crafted for you. And then I think, you know, we saw this happening during COVID, that ability to make cocktails at home really exploded. People got really interested in it. It was one of the fastest growing hobbies people were picking up besides making sourdough bread and things like that. (laughs) Appreciation was truly gained for spirits. And I think that that has allowed people to come to the restaurant and say, I recognize why I would pay for this I understand the craftsmanship that goes into making this drink in a and I and I'm watching it be made in a very different way than I understand why I'm paying more for someone popping a cork and that was not the same pre-covid I think you know we were in this position where wine and beer were, were were very trendy I think also you know this kind of continues to happen in that like a lot of the things we've been talking about for the last half decade, again, to, to remind people, there was a podcast that Zach and I had called the Vine Pair podcast way before Joanna was a co-host. But (laughs) in those conversations that you and I had a long time ago, you know, we used to talk about how also there was just this, there was all these other things that were happening in the other two categories that were never happening in spirits. We had, um, you know, this infighting happening between craft beer and macro beer and the great villain yeah. of ABI and then the, the craft beer movement really just exploding in terms of the bro culture and, you know, all these different kinds of skews of beers and now and then landing on hazy IPAs, but now hazy IPAs are for losers and if you're a real beer person, you should only be drinking pills all that was happening in beer and they started the Cicerone program and all that stuff. And then in wine, you, you've had that for decades, but then you've also had, you you know, then you had the natural wine movement and the movement towards certification and anti-certification and you know the, the crazy psalm scandals and all this stuff was happening and spirits just kind of like, hey man, we're here, we're cool. Yeah, like, And we're not going to fight against anyone and we see the value in the craft producers and the craft producers see the value in us and we don't talk shit about anyone and we're not having some certification that you have to take in order to be a bartender. You just – you prove your worth behind the stick and that's it. And if you're good at making drinks, you're good at making drinks and it's a very inclusive, open community, much more so than the other two.
1: And Maybe so, yeah.
0: And all of that is resonating. I mean – and. It just is. And I don't know how wine fixes that and how beer fixes that. They are both much more insular snobby communities. They just are. And they have language, you know, they they have a vocabulary that's much harder to understand. It's just phenomenal when you walk into a bar and meet bartenders and people in the trade and in, in, in bars and how warm they are. And I think that is because you really are in, in beer. Maybe a little less so, but I mean, in the world of psalm, you know, you you've talked about this before too, Zach. Like, you can be antisocial if you want to be. Yeah, you know, you can be really good at tasting, but you can be very awkward if you are behind the bar or behind the stick, as they say. You cannot be. You have to be very outgoing. You have to be personable, easy to talk to, gregarious, like that. Just you are not really able to have like a bad day at work behind the bar. You can, but you can't show it in the same way. So. They're, they're these amazing people that are usually very outgoing. And I think that's really benefiting, you know, the world of spirits because you have these yeah. bartenders that get really excited. They share all these great, you know, they support each other. When I was in Louisville last week, um, the one thing that multiple brands said to me was, we help everyone in this industry. We will never talk ill of another brand. Ever. Yeah. And that is definitely not true in the other two industries. Oh, and, for sure. and I think that that's, again, spirits just kind of like kept doing its thing. And there's a lot to learn here. I'm not, I want to be clear. Like, I don't think Zach, you or I are saying like spirits is better. And for both of us, I would say when we go out to eat and the thing we're the most excited about, which like is wine. You know, I yeah. I, still, I still think wine is this really just magical product that only happens once a year and, you know, has so many things that have to go perfect in order for the wine to just be exceptional. And there's something really magical about that. But there's a lot of negative that comes with that too in terms of just that barrier to entry and things that wine and beer could learn from spirits. And yeah. I think, you know, Spirits just does a much better job of that. And they're just sitting here, not speaking ill of anybody else. And then when the numbers come out, they say, check them out, y'all. Check yeah. them out.
1: I want to add one last piece here because I think it, it it's very relevant to the conversation about the the sort of way that spirits handles its business in yeah. public and all that. And, and in addition to this whole kind of conversation about there being less infighting in the spirits space and bartending There isn't none, it exists, but I agree it's not nearly as prominent and it's not nearly as kind of divisive as it has been in both beer and in wine. I also think that there is something to describe here that is important, which is that in a way that we've been talking about throughout this episode, I agree with you, wine has this incredible beauty and magic to it. And obviously anyone who's listened to the podcast for any length of time knows that like you, I love wine deeply and find it to be an incredibly exciting, intriguing product. I also love beer and find mm-hmm. beer to be really interesting and delicious and, and engaging and captivating. But neither of those two encourage a certain kind of experimentation, either from within the industry or even just from the consumer base. And I think part of what's so cool about spirits is that Not only can you enjoy them in whatever way you want, you can have your sort of highbrow or lowbrow experience, your sophisticated or your simple experience, but also they remain endlessly rewarding to kind of play with. And wine just doesn't have that. Beer doesn't have that. Beer and wine come to you as a finished product that you, in whatever setting you are in, should open and enjoy. And that's great. And look, I love that. I like not having to necessarily always fuck around with my – beverage to get it to be the way I want. But it does mean that they can feel very static in a way that spirits doesn't because there's always a new cocktail out there, a new riff, a new take, a new way to enjoy it. And because of the nature of spirits and the way that culture and bartenders and the companies themselves view spirits, that is great. And whenever anyone tries to do any kind of playing around with wine or beer whether it's serving in a different format mixing it with things there is just this inevitable like recoiling from the industry and from a lot of the consumer base it's like how dare you you know you would you should never do that maybe with the exception of like champagne cocktails yeah. or sparkling wine cocktails or a few little things you can think of that are kind of acceptable you know a michelada or whatever right ways to like play with the the base liquid and in Spirits, I think it's just it, – there is a playfulness and a and a liveliness and a sort of no fucks given kind of attitude that I don't know that either category – other category can really match because right. it's just – it ain't in their DNA. And it sucks maybe for them in this moment that, that that's not a way that they can compete. But it's just – it is something that I think Bear is mentioning.
0: And I think – look, I think that the reason this has become – there's been more awareness this than before is, again, a, a – Ongoing theme we have on the pod, which is that prior to, you know, early 2000s, right? All these people felt like all these industries felt like they had their own lane and they all stayed in them, right? We talked to the spirits drinkers, we talked to the wine drinkers, we talked to the beer drinkers, and we're not really concerned what anyone else is doing. The problem now is that because society has changed so much and we all are experimenting and drinking everything, spirits is winning. Because it's it's the one, you know, category that is able to embrace that experimentation, as you're saying, and allows for that crossover of people. It, it doesn't say, hey, that's cool, man. You want that, that bottle of wine during dinner? Cool. Cool. Enjoy that. Just come back to me afterwards. Yeah. And. Wine is sort of saying, no, 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 We have everything for the entire meal. Don't go anywhere else. <laughs> Don't go anywhere else. <laughs> beer is like, hey, man, why are you going out to dinner at all? Just go, just, just hit up Sonic and then have a light beer at home. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, that's kind of what's happening. And I feel like that's where, why Spirits is also dominating because it's not saying, hey, we can, we should be with you the whole, you know, the entire meal or the entire time you're out. They're saying, we're there when you want to be. And yeah. that's working really, really well. Let us know uh, what you think about all this. Hit us up at podcast at vinepair dot com. Got a fun uh, suggestion from a, a listener this past weekend on an email that we're going to address soon about sort of the the rise of Burgundy against the sort of fall of Bordeaux. If you have other ideas you want to hear us tackle, hit us up as well. We we love looking at these and uh, and considering them. So again, podcast at vinepair dot com. Zach, have a wonderful week. I will see you on Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now, through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show.